Hi guys, welcome to season three, episode six of Podcast Meets Purpose from Valparaiso University's Institute for Leadership and Service. I'm Liz and our pathway speaker, Rebecca Dang, is joining us today. Um, Rebecca is a survivor of the Second Sudanese Civil War and is one of the 89 lost girls who came to the United States in 2000 as a refugee. Today, she's an international speaker and advocate for women and children who've been traumatized and victimized by war. Rebecca, it's seriously such an honor to sit with you today. Um, did, would you be willing to share your story and sort of what brought you here and what you're doing right now? Yeah, thank you so much, Liz. It's a privilege and honor to be here at the Institute um, Center uh, for Leadership and to be at Valparaiso. Um, it's a pretty compass, you know, it's so nice. Um, today I got a chance to walk back and forth on campus and oh, the chapel, beautiful. Uh -huh. uh, looking in there was just really nice. So thank you for welcoming me. Um, again, my name is Rebecca Ding. I was born in Sudan. Sudan used to be Africa's largest country. And then in 2011, it split into two. <clears throat> so now we have South Sudan and Sudan mm -hmm. and contested areas like the Nuba Mountain and Abiai area and Darfur, which mm -hmm. they are considered as part of Sudan, but they want to be different. So anyway, that's a little bit of geography. Of uh, I was born into um, a Dinka tribe. My tribe is a Dinka tribe. South Sudan have 65 tribe or more, I think. Um, and so I was born into a Dinka tribe. Uh, my family are cattle herders. So we had a lot of cows and my dad got a chance to go to school. So he had a little bit of education and was trained in um, um, in the police academy and was in the military finally when South Sudan, uh, when the war broke out in 1983, he was one of the commanders of the SPLA, which is South Sudan Liberation Movement or army uh, that was fighting the Northern government. So growing up, I have heard about the war because my dad and his bodyguard and soldiers were in and out of our village. So I knew that there was something going on but I just, I couldn't comprehend what it was all about because I have never seen anyone being shot or I didn't see guns in our village. Our village was mainly uh, men and boys that, you know, take our cattle to the grazing land. They had a spear um, and things like that, but there were not really a lot of guns around. So I heard that there was war, but it didn't make sense to me. Well, that changed in 1991 ending of 1991 when my village was attacked and it was completely burned down. And it was the time that my uncle and my uncle wife with, and my um, half sibling, same dad, different mom, we start running and we thought that we will just run for a week and be back into our village. Well, week turned into month and month turned into a year. And at the ending of the year, we found ourselves at Lokichokyo, which was at the border of Sudan and Kenya. Mm. And that was the first time I actually heard of the word refugee because I was told now you are entering into a different country and you are a refugee because uh, they, you are under the UN protection, United Nations. Um, and I remember asking uncle, what is refugee? And he's like, oh, it's somebody that is kicked out of the country and can't go back. And has uh, six and a half going to seven 
it was hard for me to understand, like, why can I not go back to my village, you know? Um, but anyway, we spent a month there or two, and then we got located to Kakuma refugee camp, which is in northern Kenya, not far away from Lokichokyo, where we were at the border. And that's the land that the Kenyan government destinated for the refugees. So we arrived there at Kakuma refugee camp. It was a desert. There was nothing, no tree, no running water, no electricity. Uh, the UN distributed tents for us to stay in. Well, the problem with the tent, they were so hot, you know, so when you zip it, it just trapped the heat. And then, but you have to do that because if you leave it open, uh, the area Kakuma was so desert that all of your all of your food and your sleeping um, kits will be covered with sand. Um, so, so it was really hard. We stayed there at Kakuma. Uh, my uncle told me that, oh, we'll go back to our village uh, pretty soon, not so long. Uh, well, it, you know, at the ending of a year, there was no sign of going back. And then I was at Kakuma refugee camp for eight years. So I came to United States in November 6 of 2000 through the program Lost Boys of Sudan. Most people hear about the Lost Boys of Sudan. Um, there were some girls that came. So I, I am one of the 89 that came. And I came as an accompanied refugee minor. So through Bethany Christian Services. So I had to be... Um, put into a foster care system because I couldn't live on my own. Mm -hmm. And the family that let me in are from Holland, Michigan. So I was located in Holland, Michigan at 15 and um, not knowing a word of English. <laughs> so, um, so that was really hard, just trying to blend into American system. Now at 15, going to 16, I turned 16 right away when we came. And I have an equivalent of a third grade English or even less, but I have to be in high school. So that was hard to take a lot of courage from my ESL teachers and a lot of tutoring. And then I went to college and graduate school and uh, went back to South Sudan, actually. Um, did a work for a while with American Bible Society Mission mm -hmm. Trauma Healing, and that took me back to East Africa quite often um, to train people on uh, resiliency and uh, making sense of trauma and how do we become a trauma-aware community, trauma-aware church. Um, so, so, so that was good. Um, and then last year, uh, my book came out, What They Meant for Evil, um, which is on Amazon, Burns and Noble, and um, it's in the book form, and you can also buy it in um, in audio. And the lady that uh, read the book, her name is Sidi Loloka. She is the voice of the musical. Uh, she's the voice of the Lion King in the musical. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah, so writing my story, what they meant for Ebola kind of make, um, it was healing, it was hard, but healing for me because it was just looking at my life uh, from when I had an innocent childhood to about close to six years old, and that one was shattered one day, then living in a refugee camp for eight years, almost giving up for post-marriage and making it to United States, and then all of 
the thing that happened in between. So it was kind of making, I name it, what they meant for evil, what the Sudan government for evil toward my people, uh, what evil others meant toward us as we move around as refugee immigrants, and what uh, evil I almost meant to myself by trying to listen to voices that diminishing, you know, because you, when I was a little girl, I knew my name. I came from a tribe. I was proud. And then I'm in a refugee camp. Now in a refugee camp, I'm just a number. My name was not even in, on an ID. It was just a number that I was associated with to coming to United States and dealing with like being ESL student, a person of color, finding my identity. Uh, with all of those voices, um, it is easy for a person to man able again as yourself by by believing those voices and not and not embracing the brokenness and seeing it has something that can be built on instead of being thrown away. And that's why I named my book like that, what they meant for evil, including me myself. And and that uh, my life, which is the experience that happened to me till now, I call it has uh, my historical identity. They are part of what defined me to be Rebecca Ding and and that I should embrace it and I should face it and I should value it. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of my story as uh, author now. And I'm just so happy that I can speak with the uh, with a global global community, especially on the issues that are important, mm-hmm. like the issues of inclusions in our nation, issues of uh, welcoming others, people like refugee and immigrants. Uh, one of the things that I think people are just even confused, the difference between refugee and immigrant. Immigrant is a person that put a little bit of thought to like, okay, my situation is horrible. I cannot live here my life is being threatened and I have to just move. Even if that moving will cost my life, uh, I will just have to get out of this place. That's an immigrant. There is a at least a thought of, I want to move from this place. A refugee doesn't even have that thought. Most mm-hmm. of people, when you become a refugee, you are either sleeping at night and there's a gun and you're just running and you get split with your family members that night because maybe one person was sleeping, maybe one person was reading or maybe the other person is in a garden. I don't know, you know. So a refugee, you don't even have a premeditated a decision. A decision is made for you and you have to run for your life. And for most refugees, they don't even know what's going on until like a year later or something when they reach safety because all along they're just running for their life and they are focusing on running and making it out. And then when they are in a safe place, which is normally a place that the United Nations put them, then they kind of like, oh, okay, what happened? I left my village a couple of months ago and I've been just running all this time and now I'm in a safe place. Oh, maybe I will go back home. For example, my uncle's wife that arrived with me at Kakuma refugee camp in 1992, she's still there. She have her kids there. Some of her kids have children. So you have three generations yeah, in a that, refugee camp yeah. with no education, with no uh, good, with no health care, with no jobs. Uh, 
and yeah, it's really uh, it's a huge amount of people and 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 an asset to our humanity. Children that could be doctors and engineer and astronauts and teachers and counselors, and we are losing that population. Uh, the other hope that they have is to be resettled to a third country, which would be like United States, Canada, Australia. But when those chances are not there, they are stuck in a refugee camp. So there's also opportunity, I think, that people need to reach out to those people because maybe sometimes other countries are not welcoming them, but you have talented people. And one of the things I cheer with people is that even when I was in a refugee camp, I wanted to go to school so bad. People can be in uh, a devastating situation, but people will always dream. It doesn't matter what where you are. People will always dream. And I think that is something that God imprinted in human um, in human heart and mind and body that you just want to thrive. You just want to do better. And so those children in the refugee camp, if there's anything that will make them happy, is education. And I know a lot of people just, I want to go to school, I want to go to school, but they don't have an opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. I, um, I have a couple of questions going off of that. My sure. first one is, um, how do you think that like the line of work that you do, you're an author, you speak um, in front of um, really important crowds. How do you feel first that your faith has influenced your work? Um, and how do you think that your, um, your historical identity, like you said, um, as a refugee gave you that unique perspective on your work too? So your experiences and also your faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my faith. Um one of the thing, and I, my faith, I, I become a person of faith in a refugee camp. And one of the thing that helped me become a person of faith, or like a person that I would say is my influencer, is Jesus Christ Himself mm -hmm. as a Son of God, but had to, had to suffer in a humiliating way, but He never seen. So to me, it really makes sense then, because I was like, why is like I lost my mom and dad and siblings and my grandmother that raised me and pretty much most people that I knew when I ran from that day from the village, I lost them. So it was like, where is God in all of this? But seeing the ministry of the person of Christ um, and that he suffered and he never seen, it make me not question God uh, and make me, it make my faith strong in a sense that Sometimes we suffer and it might not it might be our fault and it might not be our fault, but the sin is so great and so innocent people will suffer. So it is that face that say, okay, if the innocent people can suffer, how can we mitigate suffering? How can we put a stop to war? How can we talk to nations of the war world? Um, and the leaders to make sure that um, there are good practices that will protect civilians. How do we go forward and be there for people that are at disadvantage, women and children in war? Um, so it is my faith that make me choose what I did, like international development is speaking and advocating on behalf of mm -hmm. women and children because I was one 
one of those kids that that you know just had to leave one day at a time and don't know if I will make it for the next day. So I think that's how my work blend in. Now that I'm speaking in front of the crowd and more people coming in, my hope and dream is to inspire people or to at least convince people that these global issues, we can overcome them. And that as a person of faith, I'm a Christian, that, that's my faith that I come. Somebody might be Muslim, somebody might be Buddhist, somebody might be traditional belief, but I totally believe and 100% believe that there's no a day that you would look into another human being eyes that God doesn't love. It doesn't matter what is their background, their faith background. Mm -hmm. So that's why I am excited to talk to a lot of people because I think as a community of humanity coming together with our diverse background, our different faith value or faith belief system, we can come together and we can come as a global village and then address these dare um issues of trauma, issues of war, issues of poverty, issues of diseases, we can overcome this. For example, when I was at Kakuma refugee camp, I we didn't have a good hospital for those that are doctors and nurses or have a background in public health, they can help there. There were no teachers. Some people can help in a teaching. There were no good policies that protect the refugees if you are abused. Some people that are in a policy making can help in a refugee camp that way. There were no none mental health being addressed. So you have people that just came out of the war yeah. and there's no counseling and there's nothing. Well, God, there are certain things a human being should never go through. And if they go through, it's going to impact us. And so you need an outlet of someone to talk to. And healing does come through sharing your story and being listened to. And that's what my book did for me. I am, um, it was healing, it was hard to relieve some memories writing it, but it was a relief for me because I felt after I write it out, I, I was being healed. I was being healed as I write each line. I was being I feel like I was shouting it out loud and somebody is reading it and I felt like I've been listened to. And so those are the things that has a global community. And if we come together, regardless of our faith background or race or whatever, we can overcome these things and we can be better together. Yeah. How do you think that um, your healing process affected your work? So before you started writing your book versus after? Did your approach change or anything like that? Yeah, before I wrote my book, I was afraid of being vulnerable, which is really exposing your trauma and thing that you've been through. So that I I had that fear. After writing it, I don't have that fear. I feel like, yeah, I was vulnerable. Uh, but at the same time, it have to, my story had to be shared for other person to not feel alone. Uh, and and so, yeah, like I, I feel like after I wrote it, I'm just more like um, it's open, it's out there. Um, there are still things that I need to heal from going forward, but I, I, I felt really 
like light. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite part of what you do? Favorite part of what I do. I love writing. I have little ones, so I'm not writing mine now, but I would love to continue writing more. I enjoy writing. It's a way for me to put my thinking into, into action, you know. Because, uh, like, I when I'm talking to people, like, I can be a really talkative person, but I think I'm really, I'm kind of like outgoing introvert in a way. So sometimes, like, writing um, make my thought flow clearly. Um, and I think, too, having English as a second language, um, there's always going to be deficiency in how I communicate. Um, because like sometimes when I'm thinking something and then I think of it in my own language and then I'm trying to translate it into English and yeah. then I kind of get lost in translation. But for some reason, when I'm sitting down and writing, it becomes more clear what I'm trying to communicate. Um, so, yeah, I love writing. I love speaking to people and edu educating people about um, refugees and their background and and what we need to be doing going forward. I would love to be more involved in areas of policy making because I believe that good people can design program with good intention, but they might not work. So I feel like as a former refugee, I it's my responsibility to be educating policymakers yeah. based on, because I was on the other end as a recipient and to be on this end too, there's a way that project can be designed that will be effective because I feel like there's a lot of money that are pouring into development, into uh, conflict mitigation, but don't work. And I think it's because they are designed by people, good people that want to do good thing, but might be missing something because they mm -hmm. just don't have experience. Yeah, they haven't lived it. They haven't lived it. And you can really design something if you haven't lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Would you want to do, like, policy on um, on the United States end or back in Sudan? Like, what? what's your... I don't know where yet, but I think it might be both wherever opportunity arise. Yeah. You know, like UN policies toward refugee. Uh, United States policies to a refugee and immigrants, um, even just like an inclusion of um, refugees at each state level to our community. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would vote for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> What's the most um, rewarding part of your work? Most rewarding part? Oh, I just love the rewarding part. I just love it at the end when when people come together, people from different background come together and talk about issue and then say, oh, now I see your point. And now we might not really understand or like each other experience, but we can come to a thing that as human together to say, hey, yeah, we need to work on this thing. I love that, seeing people come together. And that's why I love the work that I did before for a trauma healing program where people have that moment of like, oh, now I understand why I was like this. It's because of this when you find a solution together as a community and that you are being valuable, whatever you are, who you are, kind of like come as you are sort of. 
I love that part of uh, give me joy when I see that happening at the table. Yeah, with the, um, I guess with the emotionally taxing work that you do, how do you decompress from that to avoid getting burnt out? Yeah, so I listen to music, uh, playing with my daughter, she's two years old, helped me, you know, because she liked drawing sometimes, playing with Play-Dohs, or like going to Maya Garden, which is in Grand Rapids, we go there quite often. Uh, I decompress that way. So kind of like yeah. playing with my daughter, listening to music, sometimes just reading, reading, not heavy book, but just reading, reading online on Facebook or anything, kind of help me decompress. Yeah. Um, my last question for you is, what's one piece of advice you would give to students right now regarding like their purpose? Mm-hmm. My advice to students will be um, do, um, how do I put it? Okay, it will be like, um, if you feel called to do something, um, then it's worth it to pursue it, whatever that means. I know there are some students that might be like, okay, I love to do this, but it's just so hard I can't do it. Even if it means like taking it, one day at a time or one minute at a time to excel in whatever your heart tell you to do, pursue that one. Uh, I would say that go for something really that is a fashion and a calling than just money. Money is good, you know, and sometimes like I was like, I wish I had to study something that would give me more money or something like that. Um, when I came out of undergrad and didn't find a job for a while, I had those thoughts. But at the same time, I feel like what I study makes sense to me, like the international development, social work, kind of like inclusive work, studying and kind of understanding what does war do to people and trauma. Um, those things give me um, a sense of who I am. And, uh, and I love, I love, I love my job. So if, if like today when I came here, to talk to a student, I'm just so excited about it. So do something that gives you joy. I feel like joy and a sense of purpose is something you can never buy. And so my advice to a student will be that uh, find a, a career or a background that at least give you some joy. And every career, it doesn't matter what it is, as long you love it and you want to do it, you can do good thing. If you are a doctor, you will help, you know, you will, you, you will, there's a lot of people that never even seen doctors in their life. If you are a counselor, that's how they need. If you are a cleaner, like just cleaning a floor, you are creating something beautiful for somebody. So do something that you feel joy doing it uh, and do your best to be better at it, like excel at it, really work hard to be good at it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, do you have any last comments or anything like that that you want to give to us before we close? Uh, I would just say thank you so much. Thank you for um, being courageous and thank you for one thing when I look at the um, the people that have been coming and speaking to you, the diversity of background. I like that. So keep up the good work. That's how we change the culture. We mm -hmm. change the culture of being an example and and trying to include different voices. 
So keep up that good work. And that's all I will say. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That's the truth. Um, I am just like in awe of your vulnerability and your strength for the work that you do after what you've experienced. Um, I'm really grateful for you sharing your story with us today. Um, yeah. So thank you too. Um, thanks also to everyone listening um, who made it to the end of the episode with us. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at ILAS at Valpo. Um, Rebecca's speaking tonight in our Pathways to Purpose series, and that video is going to be up on our YouTube later if you're interested in hearing more about her. Um, uh, okay, yeah, that's it for me. Thanks again to Rebecca for hanging out with me today, and yeah. um, we'll see you on our next episode. Okay, thank you. Thank you.